my favorite quote of all time is, is love is a command for you to rise to your highest potential. So when you love someone, you're, if you're commanding them or yourself to rise to your highest potential, you want the best for that person. You see the best in that person. So to me, it's like, it's, it's like, like you said, it's like Ed Milet said, I've never heard that, but it's just sitting at your deathbed and you know, storage units are silly. It's just a, it's just a box that people rent for, you know, reoccurring revenue, but it doesn't matter what it is, is it's me leading a team of a lot of people and getting a lot of people behind me and investing their savings. And it's, I'm bringing together a cohesive group and we're all working like a sports team to execute and win. I just want to win. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Today, I have Jeremiah Boucher, like, you know, Bobby Boucher, like the water boy kind of Boucher. Awesome conversation. We got a chance, you know, we've been trying to connect over the last couple of months to hear a little bit more about, and we get really geeky. We get nerdy on self-storage. Jeremiah has built out, and he's now gone his fourth fund. He's got $350 million in assets under management. He's got a million, $100 million of capital that he's invested across these platforms. He's growing it and doing it in a very uh, systematic way. We even dive into his book and how that has translated into some of his success and what he's doing, the self-storage. So make sure you hear and wait for some of those technical details on self-storage. But also, as we finish out the story, some of the things of the mistakes that he made and why he wants to succeed and continue to move the needle on life, even though he's had financial success. So this is a fantastic episode. I can't wait for you to hear from my new friend, Jeremiah Boucher. Jeremiah, dude, it's awesome to hear. I've actually had a lot of people tell me I needed to interview you on the podcast. They said your story is awesome, you know, that we would connect together. I've heard snippets of, of your story. And so similar to you, I flipped a bunch of houses in, in Phoenix, not in Vegas, in early 2000s up until a very nice 
meteoric rise and a very, you know, abysmal crash, you know, uh, you then got a lot smarter uh, about how you pivoted from that. Uh, I got back just to flipping houses and did that at scale. So uh, I'd love to hear and take take some time, go through your backstory. If it's a, a few minutes, three, four, five minutes, so people can get and understand who is Jeremiah and why is he someone that has to be interviewed on this Passive Wealth Principles show? Yeah, man. Thanks, Jake. Love the love the Go Abundance Network. Love uh, what we're doing over there. Been in it for about six months. So for me, I, we you know no, I didn't know you had that that background, but yeah, that was that was a fun rise where you know buying and selling real estate in the early twenty in my early twenties, and the money was flowing like like in the movie The Big Short, right, where you you just saw the the stripper with five houses, and you thought, Jesus, like something's got to be wrong here. And uh, I had quite a few, four or five myself, and and then that collapse buried me. So I had to rebuild, and it was a great period of my life. And what I learned is money doesn't come as easy as you think. In your twenties, you think it just comes and comes, and you can spend it, and and then it, it so it's a rude awakening that you have to pay taxes, and you have to actually invest in assets, and you know, and actually be good at something, and not just ride a wave. So I figured out, you know, I wanted an edge. And, and like we talked about right before the, the podcast was, uh, I wrote a book called Finding Your Edge. It's how to win at the game of commercial real estate. And that was important for me because I needed to figure out how I differentiated myself from the valet person, the, the, the cocktail waitress, everybody that was a realtor buying and selling houses. And I jumped into these manufactured housing parks and uh, bought a, a course, a cheesy course online didn't have any money and no credit and reached out to the guys that wrote it, Dave and Frank, uh, Dave Reynolds, and and those guys really put mobile home parks on the map in terms of like C-class assets that uh, that are typical to like C-class apartments. And uh, and I just said, hey, man, I, I want to get out of the rat race. I want to go buy mobile home parks. I think I can own them. I can make some cash flow. I, I, I feel like the business model would allow me to manage them from afar. And then I just hit the phones for a decade plus and, and went out and got a list and called and got the data and called all these owners around the country and helped these guys source 90 some odd deals, built up some fees, built up some equity, and then uh, finally rolled it into my own, rolled it in my own company. And then along the way, I bought a couple storage facilities from some of these older guys that had a park and then a storage next door. And my other partners weren't interested in that. So I hopped into the storage game and started to figure out you know, in the beginning, some of these were smaller markets with no barriers to entry. And then these old guys would never raise their rent. They would keep building more and more buildings. And I didn't think storage was that great in the beginning. But I did start to notice that parks were just such a heavy load on my management team and my construction team. And we were like just barely getting a return on equity. So in 2019, I said, that's it. I'm going to exit parks for the most part. Got a ton of them liquidated, took that cash and then really went heavy in storage. And luckily, you know, storage, I bought a lot of storage around the New England area where, where originally I grew up. And uh, and a lot of people from COVID, it happened right before COVID, where during COVID, everybody flooded out to all the towns that we bought in, the suburban towns outside of Boston and New York and Maine and Vermont. And, uh, and that was huge. I mean, that's where uh, when I did the wealth um, journey interview with uh, GoBundance, I mean, my net worth, you know, doubled or tripled. I mean, it, everything filled up and I got a lot more assets under management. Now we have roughly 350 million assets under management and about 100 million in capital that we've raised. 
And that that was a just one lesson at a time, you know, learning from one half million million dollar deal up to a five or six million dollar deal to, you know, maybe up to a $10 million deal. But it was just, you know, segmented in chunks learning of this process along the way. That's man. I, I, I mean, I was gonna say, I love that story because I, I think it is, is one that uh, I've heard from other people too. It's like they started doing some, you know, incremental and it just kind of grew over some time before I get into that kind of your first deal. I'd love to hear a little bit more of like, you're in Vegas now you're from new England. So how did you end up in Vegas and kind of what was, you know, before your real estate investing journey, what was, uh, what were you doing? Yeah. Uh, so my mom and dad didn't didn't work out. So my mom took me back here to to Vegas. My grandparents worked at Raytheon and out of the test site. So I I went to junior high here, high school. Really, I was lost after high school. I thought I was going to be an athlete, and then I I went and tried out at a few colleges and and uh, couldn't even really make a good junior college as a football player. So I went to University of Reno. Uh, played rugby over there for a little bit, and I was running around in little shorts and ten degree weather, pounding, getting pounded and pounding guys. And I figured, oh my god, I, I, this isn't for me. I think I, I got to hang it up. So I was, I was pretty lost after that, and got into weightlifting and bodybuilding, and went really extreme into that. And that obviously didn't pay the bills. And I figured, you know, like I, I'm not going to get financially free doing this. And I was wanting to be maybe a nutritionist or have some type of gym. And, and I just thought, you know what, this after I read Robert Kiyosaki, I was like, you know, this is just carrying a bucket of water instead of building a pipeline to, to feed myself or water, have water for the rest of my life. So that, that was the problem. So I had to figure out how to pivot. And that's when I got into real estate where I said, you know, it's this, this makes sense. I can get into this light. I understand it. There's creativity. And I always saw the bigger picture of, wanting to build, I, I wasn't really t- wanting to take on investors, but I wanted to build assets. And I knew if I could learn how to bring on investors and start to invest in commercial assets, that I could scale things. So I always had commercial in the back of my mind, but I had to be a realtor and I had to do the, the little things first and figure out what the hell I was doing before I could start to scale up. I didn't know you, were, you did rugby at UNR. Uh, I used to drive up there when I was in high school. Um, some of my buddies dated some girls at UNR and we would drive up there. And I think we did some very, very scary drives down and over the <laughs> summit, you know, at, at night in record speed. And it was just like, Woo! but uh, UNR was, was uh, fun, uh, the times that yeah. went up there. So you got into real estate and I'd like to get into like now, and actually before that, your, your book, Finding Your Edge. Kind of talk me through that, like what, what it was, you know, how, how's the, the backstory of that title? And then how did that layer into, you know, getting, and obviously we'll jump around a little bit from the end of the commercial, and then we can take it back to the, you know, some of your first deals. Yeah, I think the underlying theme is that, you know, I'm a hard worker. A lot of people are hard workers. You know, I emulate my father. He's a hard worker. He has a paving business that I grew up in the summers, you know, paving, raking asphalt, working the back of the screw on the machine and doing all the, the manual labor stuff. And that taught me a lot in the sense of lead from the front, you know, lead by example. You're never too good for a job. And and really, you, you know, just like in sports, you know, people are going to look at what you do, not what you say. So I, I got a lot of great character traits from that. But then I hit a point where it was like, not only do you need to work hard and, and show an example, you got to be smart. I mean, you got to, you got, everybody's working hard. Everybody's got, an, uh, has access to information. 
So that's where that finding your edge is like you have to have a competitive advantage and you have to think, number one, what are my strengths and skills? And number two, where am I seeing something that other people aren't seeing? And, and I have to really think it through. I can't just mindlessly go through life. So I was I was pushing myself ahead of the in terms of finding these mobile home parks where they were not sexy. It was not popular. It was really unknown at the time. And that was a, a differentiator for me. And, and I was cold calling. And at the time, that wasn't very popular either. No one was calling some guy in the middle of the, you know, Texas asking if he would sell his park. So I, I was ahead of the curve. But through that process, one, I, I got to evolve and learn how to really be creative and build a real estate company. But number two, it was these principles that I feel are very important for building uh, an entrepreneur, building a business, building a, your career, building your investment firm. So that's what I outlined in there is six different ideas or principles that I learned. It's, it's, you know, obviously the, the show pa uh, Passive Wealth Principles is, is, is exactly uh, what, what you just said. There's, there's principles to everything. There's principles and they, they echo over from how you are with your health, your fitness, your workout regimen. There's certain principles that are just like, this is, you know, and, and it's like, again, I was like, you, I don't know if you've seen those little signs, like, you know, discover the secret of uh, how to lose 20 pounds. And then you call them up and they're like, you know, diet and exercise. And you're like, oh, wow, crazy. You know, it's like same thing, success in business. There's certain principles that exist. And it's just like, what is it? Well, it's doing the, the, the basics consistently over long periods of time. You do that. Day in, day out, and as again, you know, the best basketball players are not, you know, the Kobe Bryant's and Michael Jordan's, things like that, still practice free throws. They still practice layups and rebounding and those other things. What happens is I see so many people that want to just go to the end. They want to go to where it is, is the, the baseline jumper, you know, uh, hitting the game-winning shot to even be in that position. You have to do the other things correct, the principles so how did you get started discovering that process? What was that for you figuring out your, 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 the principles that you layered into success? I know that you maybe gave some clues to that was working with your dad, working hard work and manual labor and, and uh, paving is not an easy job. It's hot. It's sticky. It's, you know, grind work. I, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the, the process and, and, I love you know basketball as a as a metaphor. There, I hope we can have Tim Grover speak at Go Abundance. You know, I just saw him speak at the Ascent Conference for the, the real estate sponsors in Miami, and it was phenomenal. And then I read you know his uh, Relentless book, and then I read Winning, and just the the insight into the obsession, right? The burning obsession that these guys have, these athletes. Not all, and then the way I relate it to what we do in investing in in, in business is. You know, you not only have to do the fundamentals, you have to, that's expected. I mean, you have to have a high standard for yourself and you have to actually play to whatever you're good at, your strength. If it's analyzing deals, if it's communicating, if it's presenting, if it's aggregating data and, and having access to opportunities other people don't, if it's construction, I mean, or building teams. So these things were, were important for me. So, so your question was, like, how did I, how did this process evolve for me to get there. Uh, I think, you know, the first principle is like, you have to master your craft, you have to actually add value. And if you don't add value, if you don't have a unique niche, then you don't get paid in return. 
money is just an exchange of value. So if whatever I'm doing is not valued by a lot of people, then I'm not going to make any money. So I had to I had to really get good at real estate. And I was I was thinking in real estate, I don't want to be another and I don't mean to disrespect realtors, but just like another dumb realtor out there that's just trying to get a contract signed and push push it along. And they're not even good salesmen. I mean, they they don't even know the fundamentals. So for me, I learned everything I could. I read every book, you know, about your tax basis, about creative financing, about you know, structuring um, just installment sales and anything I can do, you know, subdividing pieces of land off and and syndicating. And it took about seven years for me to understand the, the basics, but I had a lot of an advantage over all these other people calling sellers where when capital gains tax was rising or when guys had a very low basis in an asset sellers, I could structure these creative deals and speak a language that that was allowing to solve their problem. And I got into some great deals and I didn't have a lot of resources behind me. I didn't have credit, didn't have cash. So that process one was out of necessity. You know, like in my book, I had a quote in there from Michael Jordan and he's like, push me to my weakness and and I will I will make it my strength. So if you had the limited resources you have, you've learned to work with every single thing that you what little resources you have to make it and maximize every advantage that you can with that. And that's what I had to do. So I had to limit myself to just seller financing deals. So I had to work my butt off just to even find that I, I had no money or credit. So that so that was a great thing is having limited resources and not having experience can be one of your greatest advantages if you just stick with it to evolve and to become something uh, and to grow into to something uh, that you you'll be successful. Yeah, that's I, I love that. There's uh, the one shark guy, Damon John. So he he wrote a book called the 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 power of broke. And, you know, which is interesting. So you use some analogy and it triggered a memory that when you mentioned that, like, hey, I had limited resources. I didn't have the financial wherewithal. So same thing. He had limited resources of his clothing stuff. Like he would give it to like a rapper to do a shoot and then be like, yeah, you got to give that to me back. <laughs> like I got to take it to somewhere else. Like, sorry, you can't have that. So it, it created a mountain of scarcity and the street brand and the the exclusivity of it also played to his advantage. And I think that's one of the key components is everything is for your benefit if you look at it that way. So you were able to create scenarios only of the creative or seller financing structures because you had no money. But like that turned into the being and leveraging one of your superpowers of the ability to connect and understand and solve a problem. Had you just had lots of money, I don't think you would have learned the the true lessons behind of how to structure the deal, how to do that properly versus like, I have $10 million. Can I buy that from you? Here you go, $10 million. You know, it, it, it wouldn't have taught you the fundamental basics of the first order principles of how are you actually solving someone's problem? So I want to get into that because you dove into mobile homes manufacturer homes for the, the the fancy people that don't want to call them mobile home parks, trailer parks. I grew up in a mobile home park. I had, I remember staying at one when I was a kid after. So how did you go into this avenue of mobile home parks? How did you discover that? How did you get into it when it was not sexy or manufactured housing or something along those lines? What took you down that path? Yeah, a buddy of mine, 
me and him were we went to a course called Creative Commercial Real Estate. Uh, this guy named Scott Shiel, and we started to learn commercial real estate and how to model things and what a cap rate was, and that was really important for us. It's just we found really quickly that we had no money, and you can't. There's no. I can't buy a retail center. I can't buy an office building at the time. So I was like, what are some of the alternatives? And I found, a, you know, mobile home parks were an asset class that in storage and gas stations as an alternative. And I started to read up on them. And then I bought that course for a couple hundred bucks online. And it was the 10-20-10 course by those guys, uh, Dave Reynolds. And it made sense. It just, it just really was clear that it's a very simple business model, a land lease community where, you know, the collateral that, that the owner owns the actual home the real value in the asset is the land and the infrastructure. And I understand infrastructure and land. I, you know, I grew up paving roads. So to me, it was natural. Like, okay, I can go do, I can do well at this. And I saw there was, you know, affordable housing. I knew I could see the trend and we all could. It's not getting cheaper. So I, that list, you know, buying the list and, and cold calling the list, you know, that was a long process. And then being creative, pulling Freedom of Information Act uh, forms from each county or city and getting the licenses for the mobile home parks and getting the owner data. And that took a long time. I mean, just years looking at my computer alone before Upwork was around and building this database at night and then calling as soon as I rolled out of bed in the morning, whacking down tons of coffee with my girlfriend, like laying on the bed next to me. It was a one bedroom. So it was like I was just hammering the phones and, and working 12 hour days and it's funny because now I'm in storage and I'm building it, rebuilding the database and I'm going back to these old days and I'm having these, I'm having uh, like, <laughs> like trauma because uh, how, how much of a pain in the ass it is. But the, the money is in the data, uh, but it's, it's not easy. Well, I, I feel like it's gotten so much easier, like you just said, because you have to, that's, there's another core principle right there. You have to start with data. There's so many people that it's like, what is your data set? What is it that you're going after? If you don't know what you're going after, it's very difficult for you to just define mobile home parks or now self-storage units. You could go on CoStar, LoopNet, Crexy, go look for deals. But by and large, I'm going to say those are probably not good deals. So if you need a competitive advantage, you need to do something, you're going to have to do something that some other people aren't doing. And then your data. So you said buying the list. So where was it when you started? Where did you buy this list? Where did you find this? What was those early list building activities like for you? And then how has that changed now for you when you're now building your database for self-storage? Yeah. I mean, back then it was it was on this, the mobile home park store. He sold it at the time. It, it, it wasn't a great list, honestly. I'm not sure how he built it. So what I, but it gave me a framework. At least it gave me enough information to start looking up the properties. And that was really, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, I don't know what it was called back then. Uh, but it, nowadays it's fast people search, real people search. I mean, that works. It's a free database. I mean, I've had a lot of different paid subscriptions and, uh, those are actually decent sites to find phone numbers. And then of course the assessor data, you know, I'm playing around with a bunch of different ones with land vision and Reonomy and, all these these different data uh, ag aggregating sites. The problem with storage is is you can't get you can't get a zoning or a permit because you can't buy the permits or the zoning lists because in every municipality or every state it's zoned differently. 
Sometimes it's industrial. Sometimes it's commercial. Sometimes it's it's mixed use. So um, what I'm doing, Jake, is and I, I mean not to give it away, but it's still a lot of hard work. Is just scraping, you know, having people scrape Google Maps, and we're get, digging down and building the team and going back to the basics of looking them up and. I don't have, I'm not a data guy. It's just sheer hard work with a, with a team. Yeah. And that's, I mean, makes a lot of sense because exactly what you just said. So for people that don't know, you know, you can dig in land vision is a great example of that or, or land glide is another kind of, you know, kind of the version of that is like, you can go in and look at it. What is the zoning? What is the you know, thing versus like, you know, sometimes mobile home parks have different zonings, but like you said, they had certain permits that they had to file for before. So it's like maybe easier to find a mobile home park than it is to find a self-storage unit and then a self-storage unit that you got to go dig in. And, and we did a lot of stuff at foreclosures. And so I actually brought in uh, somebody from title company. So I, I hired a guy over from a title company. And so we do like deep dive title searches because like we wanted to track in mortgage information, other things to like your, your creative financing is like that only works for certain people. They have a really big mortgage on it. You can't go lowball them. You can't buy it for less than they owe on it. Like that's not very appealing to a lot of people to like come to closing table and be like, sure, let me lose a million dollars on this self storage unit that's just paying its bills right now. So, I mean, what are you now finding as far as is like your ideal avatar or deal size or structure? Like what is it that you're finding as, as a niche, as an opportunity for you now that you've rolled out? And I think it's your fourth fund. You have $100 million plus in equity. You have $300, $350 million in assets under management. So now you're tapping into this thing of you need scale. So what is it that is you know, almost quasi, it's not institutional size, but it's like that tweener that is ideal for somebody that is, and I don't, maybe it's still doing half a million dollar parks, but I doubt it. Um, what is it that, and how are you finding that secret? So, in that, and the reason I ask is maybe there's some people that can help bring you deals from listening in on this call. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I made a conscious decision, you know, leading the, the organization and I'm going back to the the model of storage where I want a mismanaged mid-sized storage. And what that means is it's anywhere on the small side, 20 to 30,000 square feet. That's typically five to eight buildings, uh, a couple hundred units. And I want to be able to expand it. And the, the avatar is 50,000 feet. If we can get to 50 to 100,000 square feet, that's ideal. But I'm looking at stuff that's in suburban markets, uh, tertiary markets, off the freeways or on the main drags of towns, typically not paved. The sign looks like hell. The buildings might be beat up a little bit, but they are real storage buildings. They're not conversions of 1910 warehouses. They're not, uh, you know, ran down old barns. I mean, they're, they were built for storage in the 80s, 90s, and now we're coming in paving it, painting it, lighting it up with nice lights, cameras, fencing, signage, you know, just this basically like with the house flipping model that a lot of guys do. But we, we have this package we put on this storage and then we can remotely manage it. And I invested a lot of money and time into operations and building a system and where we have a maintenance staff and then we have a call center that remotely manages and we can maximize rents. And this deal size is roughly one to two million on the lowest end 
you know, typically up to 10 million on the high end. And we love that, you know, three to $7 million range is, is our sweet spot. And if we can add one or $2 million of storage in it on an expansion, I mean, those are no brainers. It's like right now we want to play a little bit of defense with what's going on, you know, entering what I believe is going to be a significant recession and where rates are still, we're not sure where they're going. You know, let's lower lever a little bit, 70, 75% max. Uh, let's go in and buy what we know works. Let's go into markets where we can, even if there's some changes, we're going to be able to withstand the storm. And uh, and then we have good solid assets that we polished up and have low CapEx for the next 10 plus years. And we're set. So even if we can't exit, we got good distributions. Everybody's happy every quarter. And we have this aggregated portfolio in these markets that are typically decent. I mean, we had a lot of a lot of flight outside of D.C. or outside of uh, Atlanta or any of these cities down. We're looking down now in the mid-Atlantic, going to dive down south. But yeah, if anybody finds any of these ratty storages owned by mom and pops, you know, that that's our target that we're going after. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, Two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of things you just put in there that I think were nuggets. One, paving them. Maybe somebody had experience doing that. You had experience paving things, you know, you know what that should cost. So where are you seeing like the big, like Delta value add component? Is it something like that? The value add of of the paving? Is it the remote operations? You know, like what are the things that you do within your organization that if, you know, you could only do one or two of them, what would it be because it moves the needle the most? And then, you know, what are some of the other kind of nice to have kind of upgrades that you do? Because you listed a whole bunch of them that you potentially do to a property. Yeah, good question. So, I mean, the most important thing, and not because I'm biased, but it, it really does work, is, is the paving. I mean, you can make a property just dressed up so much more. It's, it looks like it's 20 years younger and you're not, you're not fumbling around in the mud when you're trying to put your stuff in and out of, of the unit. So if, if what I would say, if there's top three things is you pave it, you put good lighting out there so that people don't feel it's scary. I mean, it dresses it up at night where people are very, they feel it's safe. You know, our, our target customers, typically women. And the third is signage. That's if I had to do three things, those things, uh, it's, it really upgrades the curb appeal, which in 
this business is like a retail business where perception is reality. And then that leads into how, how we actually maximize value and create value. And, you know, the lever that you, you mentioned and the lever is raising rents. So if you're going to command premium rents in a market or be near the REITs in that market, if there are any, within 10%, then you need to look like a polished product, something that's worth paying for. So once we add in marketing and we start, I mean, half the time, these people don't even pick up their phone or have the ability to lease a unit online. So that alone, you know, just increases traffic. But the number one driver, Jake, is rents. I mean, everything you look at, remote management is great and it does, it does uh, increase our margins and we can get our expense ratio to 32 to 34%. But, but I mean, the real driver is you got to target markets that you have favorable rents on, meaning at least $10, $12, $14 median rents annually on, per square foot. If you can't hit that, I don't want to be in the markets that are six or eight bucks. I, I can't be in rural Iowa, rural Nebraska, Minnesota. Like you're just never going to move the needle to drive the value to the asset. Yeah, no, I, I think we, it's interesting, this conversation. And part of it is just my naivety towards self-storage. And so I, I think this is interesting that you're kind of getting a little bit more into the nuanced details of self-storage as a whole. So, you know, with that, as far as you know, maybe explain that why that six, eight dollar a foot rent doesn't make sense, and and where you know it kind of makes sense for you. You know, is that more ten, twelve? You know, is it you know north of that? And then why? Why does that those particular rents make sense for you and what you're doing? And and part of it is because this podcast a little bit of his education is people that are looking, they hear things like self storage, like, Oh, I should go do that. And I jump in and then they're like, look, there's this great deal. And you know, Dubuque, Iowa, like, Oh, wow, let me go jump into it. And then it never really performs. And now they have a lot of risk to that because they've bought a crappy asset in a, maybe not a great market. And you know, they spent too much on their capital improvements and they paved it and put lights and those other things. And then it's just like, ah, oh, this thing's a dud. Apparently self-storage sucks. I did all that. Yep. Yeah, I did that in Winnemucca, Nevada. That was a rough, rough time. So it took me 10 years to get that, eight or nine years to get that asset to create equity for me. I did exactly what you said. And I could not move the needle because the 10 by 10 rents would not go higher than $55 a month. And when you put in your unit mix, you take every single unit size you have and you put in this, the amount that they charge and then you gross it up and divide it up over the square footage for the year. I mean, you divided the square footage by it. You know, you were going to get that four, five, six dollar number that, that that property can generate. So the reason being is, is storage is always a market within a market. So when someone says, I want storage or is storage good? It's like, well, I mean, that's like saying, you know, is your arm good? Like, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's relative. So what it means is each market has its own nuances. And if it's undersupplied, the market, and you have the metrics, you have the median homes are 300 more thousand. If median income is close to 80,000. If you have uh, rents, the average rent in the market is 100 or more, $120 for a 10 by 10. You're going to get close to that $12 annual rent. And you have the demographics in the region that are going to allow you to charge that rent. And then if you have barriers to entry, what I like, you know, that's in the Northeast and, and throughout the East Coast, it's a little harder to build in a lot of these uh, towns or these different municipalities. 
So that prevents the competition. And that's your number one issue is competition. You know, I don't believe the, the demand side is ever going to go away. I mean, even with the new generation, you know, maybe they throw things away or maybe think people don't hold things as, as long. But we're still over-consuming. The values of real estate are never going to go down over the long term. People are running out of space, especially in markets where there are good jobs. I mean, it's just the price you to own real estate. So people work from home. They consolidate and live with friends. They have a gym at home. They, ha you know, they have cars that are in the garage. There's no room. So I believe there's always going to be this demand curve for the next 10 or 20 years. But, the, but really, the challenge is going to be the supply side. And if you know more and more developers get into the game and flood the supply, really, storage comes down to price and convenience. I mean, as long as you have a relatively safe looking product that looks decent, you know, the customer is just going to look at you and go, I'll get your, you know, if they're $20 cheaper and they're right next to you, I'm probably just going to go to the other guy. Now, if they're 20 miles down the road, they're going to say, OK, I'm going to I'll just be in the convenient location and pay the extra 20 bucks. So for us, it's, you know, being careful and looking at those markets that we can hit those metrics. If you can hit those metrics and you can get the scale. You can get to the at least 40 to 50,000 square feet on that asset or get a few in that market where you have three, 400 units. Now you've got at least something that you can create at least a million dollars in value on that asset. Our target is at least $2 million within the, the first you know, two to three years. Because with us as value-add investors, we need a 30% appreciation within you know, 18 to 24 months. So we never want to buy it. We're not in that phase of our career with our funds or with my personal investments where I buy an asset, it's already stabilized, it's, and then now I have no movement. I'm not, I'm not just allocating the capital to preserve it. I need to accelerate the growth of that capital and then at that point either refinance or exit and then move on and find a, a project again to do it and do it again. You, you mentioned a few things. You're 30 percent because you're a value add guy. You know, your value add, you need to, to drive and force the appreciation of at least 30 percent on that. And you do that by adding more square footage, you know, because one, it already makes sense. And so you're just going to add more boxes that you can rent out on top of your kind of capex and then obviously some barriers of entry so preventing uh too much supply coming into that market or maybe it's just a, a lower kind of tier so when you look at that how are you kind of diving into your demand generators or demand curve versus the supply side and is is have you broken that down you mentioned earlier, you're not a data guy, but you're talking about a lot of things that are data driven. And, you know, so like, how do you come up with that scenario for you and for what you guys are doing? Because I, I think that'd be interesting to hear you know, how the experts do it. Sure. Yeah. And Jake, I, I'm definitely, I analyze data. I just, I don't build databases or, or, or aggregate the data. That's tough. So that's why now we got up work. Thank God. But so, yeah, with the data that I do read when I when I do have the analysis of the market is, I mean, the best thing you can do right out of the gate is analyze the competition. It's a very simple formula. You know, how, typically in a rural market where you're near a Walmart, Dollar General, tractor supply, you're going to draw from about 10 miles around you where people are going to come in and shop and that's going to be your customer base. That. And if you're more in a, a suburban market, people are going to be about five miles around you because their services are there and they don't really need to go that far for, from their home to go get services. So you're going to look at the population in that, that area, that, that circular area around you. And then you're just going to count up how much storage is in this market right now. And, and then you're just going to divide it. So you're going to find out how many square feet of storage are there in this trade area per person. 
So for us, you know, right now the national average is 8.33 square feet per person across the national average. Now, some markets, like if you're in New York City and everyone lives in an apartment, they're going to need 20, 30 square feet per person because they have no room. Now, if you're in the middle of nowhere land and, and there's really no demand for storage or they have a lot of room cheap, you know, that might be seven square feet per person or six and a half. So for us, we just want to know, number one, how much supply is there and how much is number two, how much is coming online. And then we don't want to make sure we get in a market where there's 12, 13, 15, 18 square feet per person. Because if you're not getting year over year, three, four, five percent population growth, it's going to take a long time for you to get enough customers to fill it. But on the demand side, you know, we, if, if there's roughly positive one percent a year, even a half percent a year of population growth, and you still have a somewhat affluent community, meaning not affluent, but 70, 80,000 up to 100,000 median income. I mean, that's it's pretty good where you got enough enough money there in the community that can support the demand that should be there based on the supply, the lack of supply, as long as we're going in those right markets. That's great. I, I think, that, you know, and I appreciate you kind of diving into that. I think there's a lot of you know technical knowledge that you're espousing and diving into some details for someone. I, I want to take this to a, a, a kind of a now just kind of a little bit different level. You've achieved the American dream, financial freedom. You've kind of done these, you know, um, I think leave left economic gravity, so to speak. You can buy kind of what you want, when you want. You've, you've kind of, you know, gone to that next level. So what is it that you're working on now? Why do you still do this? Is what is your driver? What, what does Jeremiah, when you wake up, you know, every day, what is you know next for you? What's the next few years look like for you and why? And it's good for GoBundance guys to get into that question. For me, I, for lack of better terms, there's rich and then there's wealthy. And you know, I, I got rich and that's good. I could sell everything, liquidate positions, you know, lay everybody off and not have to deal with many people or things. And to me, I, it doesn't really excite me because it's taken me 20 years. I've been in this now 20 plus years. It's like you you worked on your craft, you, you know, you're a fighter that worked for 20 years and then you finally have your chance at the title and then you're just going to say, ah, oh, I'm good. You know, I, I, you know, I made enough money. I'm just going to go back home with my wife. It's just it's got to kill people, right, where you work so hard to get to that opportunity where, you know, like Tim Grover says, pressure is a privilege where, you know, I earn the right to have the ball in my hand and take the shot. And it's what's great is through GoBundance and all the different networks that have invested in me. You know, now all these people look at me and, and I'm responsible for their money and part of their retirement. And it's like I earned the right to get to that point. And I built an organization with you know, 60 plus employees where we have to pay those salaries. All these people's families depend on it. And the reason I'm not just hiring people for the sake of hiring people, I'm hiring them to, to actually deliver on the expectations and the standards that the investors have, our customers have, that I have as a business owner. So it's like I've created this entire foundation, this platform for me to actually build on. And now it's not time to take my foot off the gas, you know, believe it or not, to get to the next level in my personal ambitions to really be able to be exposed to meeting interesting people or, or traveling the world or having the access to a jet when I want to go. I want to take it to that level where 
I think I see an opportunity and I see a window in the next five years in my business plan. And it's not easy, but I do see a void in the market. And I believe we have an edge there. And I invested in all the people to execute. So now it's time. It's like, you know, it's like people ask me the same question. And it's like, I have now I have to work harder than I ever did. I'm on this platform where we're right on the cusp of getting to that next space where we could have a billion dollars of assets. And then we have public storage, extra space storage. We have a major company, Blackstone, buy us. And then it's like, good night. I 5X'd everybody's money. I, I can go really choose to do what I want to do. My employees get their profit sharing. I mean, so I, I want to finish this. Like, I'm, I'm fucking obsessed. I'm telling you, man, I, I want this so bad. This is the thing that my life revolves around. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I want to take care of my parents. And someday I'll get married. But this is it, man. This is like, this is my dream. I love that so much. And, and so uh, somebody explained that. Uh, it was actually Ed Milet. He was at an event. And I don't know if you've heard this before. But I see it in you. I see it in part of the thing is that whether you believe in, in higher power, God or something else, but you know, so he uses this example of like when he dies and goes to heaven, that God is going to show him the version that he could have been if he lived up to his full potential. And so when that is, is so same thing. I have my family ask me these questions like, why, why, why keep working? Why not hang it up? Why not do some of those things? And it'd be like, well, my race is not because let's be honest, money's fake. Money is a, you know, Fugazi Fugazi, the federal government just proved that to everyone that it's, it's make-believe. It's, it's fiat currency. You can drive the values up and down. But what you're tapping into is your purpose. And your purpose is pushing to your potential and pushing to that comfort level and then beyond that. And I love the, the title of your book, Finding Your Edge. So guess what? You need to go push to your edge of what is it that Jeremiah is capable of? What is the potential of your existence on who you are to this, to this you know, existence of human? And I go, it's not to make money. And to be honest with you, it's, it's not, it is, it is going to be, is unlocking the permission for other people, unlocking those employees, giving those other things into that. It's like, it never gets easier ever. There is no downhill path. Like it is an uphill climb the entire way until you die. And so the fact that you mentioned and just said, I'm working harder than I've ever worked. Maybe from the, the hours, but I was like, I see it. And at least you're more inspired than you've ever been. You're more fired up about it. Like it was maybe a grind earlier, but you're doing more things that you're doing today that fire you up and fill you up. And I can see it and come out of you. So I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that right now. So like, what is it that makes you want to do that? What is it that caused you to want to find your edge? What is it? that continues to want you to push to a higher and better purpose. <laughs> I mean, you, you nailed it, Jake. Is My favorite quote of all time is, is, love is a command for you to rise to your highest potential. So when you love someone, you're, you're commanding them or yourself to rise to your highest potential. You want the best for that person. You see the best in that person. So to me, it's like, it's, it's like, like you said, it's like Ed Mallette said, I've never heard that, but it's just sitting at your deathbed and 
you know, storage units are silly. It's just a it's just a box that people rent for, you know, reoccurring revenue, but it doesn't matter. What it is is it's me leading a team of a lot of people and getting a lot of people behind me and investing their savings. And it's I'm bringing together a cohesive group and we're all working like a sports team to execute and win. I just want to win. So I don't I don't I mean, ultimately, the money is how we keep score. And I want to have a lot of it and I want to go build something else. But the process for me to build this vehicle and win at this game translates to anything I want to create. If I want to build, you know, water wells in Africa, or if I want to do anything that I want to do to improve people's lives, it's a business. That's what the world revolves around. So if I can run a business and make it successful, I can translate that into any other area of my life. And I understand the rules of the game and I understand people. And I want to understand how to drive people and have them rise to their potential and allocate their skills so they're put in a position where they are doing doing exactly what they want to do and, and maximizing what they can do. So, so that it's just this is the process that I I don't know. I feel like I don't have a choice. And maybe, you know, to go deeper, Jake, it's like, you know, I, I left my father when I was a little kid and he was a hard worker and I want to earn, you know, like the psychology behind it is I want to prove that, you know, to that male in my life, my dad, that. I, I earned it that I'm, you know, I'm worthy, you know, and, and, and it's now I understand it's just a child thing, but it's still in me. Like I emulate him no matter what. I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, you know, because I think exactly as, as all of us as, as kids seeing our father, or maybe that father figure, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's something else as far as wanting to, to dive into that and show, uh, value, you know, that we're all worthy individuals. And I, and I think, you know, as, as somebody that's married and, and a father of, of kids and stuff like that, you still, it, it never kind of goes away that you want to show and add value to the world. Um, get permission. You know, I love that you use that as a quote to love because I, I really think that is our highest calling. It's pretty simple. It's just to love, to love others. And, you know, you do and exercise that in a lot of different ways, but I want to pull this back to like, how did you, did you always start at that you know, place where you are today? Like what were some of the, 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 the lessons or mistakes that you maybe made during that process? At least for me, maybe it's exclusive to me, but I, I've made so many mistakes that it was like, and people come in and be like, Hey, I want to do this. And I'm like, Oh, let me tell you about the four ways in which I failed at doing that. Um, so I can give you, so like maybe pull that back to like, when you started out, what was that path? Was it always that path? And then what are some of the mistakes you made that has been growing uh, your organization over the last 20 years? Yeah, a lot of mistakes, Jake, big time. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think the, the quote I used in my book was, without a vision, a man will perish. You know, and I'm not too very religious, but, but I grew up going to church. And that, that was a major problem for me. When I came out of high school and I was disillusioned by not getting the the drive or the adrenaline or the rush of sports anymore. And I felt subjected to sitting in an office and I thought some, I was really discouraged. I, I was an ambitious kid that had a lot of energy and I couldn't, I couldn't settle down. I, I was pretty frustrated at things and I went on the wrong path bad. And I mean, I, and I'm in the city where you can, you can kill yourself on the wrong path. And so I was around the wrong people doing the wrong things. And then, you take, put a little money into that equation when you're in your 20s, your early 20s, because the house flipping where I really didn't feel like I earned it and I found a, a little angle and got some money fast. That really I, I went to some dark places 
And I had to hit what was bottom for me, which was a, a really challenging time. And uh, I had, I felt, I had some things that happened to me that made me wake up where my mother really looked at me with pity and I felt I let my mother down and she didn't even say it. I could just tell it. And that was a really hard time in my life because, you know, as a kid, I was an Eagle Scout and I was, you know, captain of the football team and I worked hard and I had all these goals and, and I just lost my purpose, man. And you know what? I'm so glad I did it. And I went to the extreme and I did some crazy stuff and I'm glad because now I'm in my 40s. I don't need to go do anything crazy. And secondly, I had to do it for me. I didn't have to do it for my parents. I didn't have to do it for what TV tells me is right or looking good and being in the right house and some flashy car. I, I lost it all and I figured out what was authentic and what I like to do and, I, and why I like real estate and why I like building a business. And then I rebuilt it because I wanted it and not, be, not because I needed to look a certain way. So that was, to me, I was really good. Like I'm, then I organically did it for myself. I struggled. I mean, nobody really helped me. I mean, I, in terms of like, I had to go figure it out myself and that was just the best gift. But, but I mean, it was long, man. It was 10 years of shit, like a lot of shit to get here. And, uh, and I had to become a man. I had to take responsibility for myself and my actions. I had to deal with conflict. And if things don't go right, you can't go escape. There is no easy way out. You can't run away. Just face it and handle it. And, and those, are, those three lessons were critical for me. And, and then everything got easier. And then actually my lifting in my, the old days and the training and me having that vision for football, all those reps gave me the, the platform where I just took what I do now and put it back into that archetype of who I was when I was in high school. And it's like, okay, now I got a purpose and now I got knowledge and now I can take that work ethic that I had when I was a kid, boom. And now it's like the same thing. I can, I can accelerate this thing. I think that was so awesome. What you just said, growing up, being a man, taking responsibility. I think that's one of the big things that's lacking in society as a whole. Everybody's in the, the TikTok version of life of they want their five second instantaneous satisfaction of, of, you know, when success, fame, whatever it is, but it's, it takes you 10 years sometimes to get that level of success to where you're just starting. You've been now doing this for 20 years. So uh, I know that we, we, you have a bunch of things going on as well. And I want to make sure to, to respect your time. I got a few, few last questions and more kind of rapid fire questions. They don't have to be rapid fire on your answers, but this has been fascinating to me. I, I love hearing your, your technical you know, chops of getting into the, the nuance of self-storage, but also some of your path of your journey is growing up and becoming a man because I think that is, is so, so true. And actually, before I get into those three questions, I have a follow-up to that question is like, if you had to do it all over, knowing that it took you 10 years to get through some of those things, you didn't have someone helping you out, what would have you done differently? Or what would that advice be to the young Jeremiah that was starting out in this 20 years ago as is, say, as a mentor guide to that young, young man? <laughs> I mean, my... My gut response tells me, oh, I would have tried to salvage my credit earlier. I wish I wouldn't have let it all go, you know, with the foreclosure and the, the tax liens. So the number one would be get a good accountant and figure out how to really pay your taxes the right way because he didn't do it right and I didn't know what he was doing. And I, that, that really hurt me for years. Number two, because I was a realtor getting, uh, you know, 1099 commissions. Number two is uh, learn accounting. 
So get a good accountant. And number, if I would have just studied accounting, understanding the basics of, of a balance sheet and a profit loss statement and, and proper credit and debits, that would have been very helpful for me. <laughs> and, uh, and number three, I, I probably, I would probably have, uh, I would have raised money earlier. Like I was, I thought I could do it all on my own for so long and it limited my growth. But the flip side of that is it gave me a lot of confidence that I, I put up a lot of my money and put a lot of risk up there. So I felt confident that I could go raise money. Awesome. Those are great tidbits of information. So the young listeners out there, if you're listening to that, you know, go study accounting, go figure it out, get good, good tax help, good tax professionals around you because, uh, yeah, that is uh, part of my mistake too, uh, in the past. And so there's a lot of similarities that, you know, you and I have had that we had to go figure our way out of. If you just done it correctly out of the gate, it's like, it's so much easier if you just like fill out the right form, like check the right box, fill it in in appropriate times. And it's like, Oh, literally it cost you nothing. Had you just done this on time? I digress. But, uh, so the, the questions, what is the one book besides yours that you have gifted most to other people? Uh, the one I've gifted most is thinking grow rich. I, I gave it away to about 50 guys at at an event. And for me, I practiced it. And at one of the events I shared it where my burning obsession and when I had nothing, I did that exercise of what I was going to offer in, in value to the world in order to get what I wanted in return in value and what I was willing to do in order to get that and, and why I wanted it. So those four things that, that, that statement I said over and over yelling it in the shower, you know, it was, it was just helped me ground in how, what I wanted to do to get financial freedom and what was necessary and why, why I really wanted it. So the next question is what is then the most valuable thing that you've spent money on that's given you more time? I, this is just off the top of my head, but I, I have this whoop here and I track my sleep and I know some people have aura rings, but I, I now go to bed earlier and I hated going to bed early. But now the fact that I track it and I see my recovery and now I wake up at 4.35.30 by 6 a.m., I have so much more time. So it was really being disciplined enough and it's easier when you don't have a girlfriend, but to go to bed earlier and, and now I get up really early and I have a lot more time. That's awesome. I love that. I, 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 that's a, I have my aura ring that I do is track the same thing. So that's been a big focus of mine this year. Um, the final question is more uh, of the audience. What is the one thing that you would ask of the audience to help you as far as if it is to source one of those deals, to go find you, to follow, to buy your book, to do whatever those things? What is the one ask of the audience that uh, could help benefit you because you've given you know super valuable information in the last hour of discussing with them. So how can they reciprocate and give something of value to you? Yeah. I, I mean, number one is if anyone out there sees an old ratty storage facility and it's got at least five or six buildings, four or five, three, four or five buildings, something, give me, you know, call, send me an email, give me a call. Like we'd love to buy it as, you know, as long as it's not in the middle of nowhere, if it's off a main drag, good visibility, some extra room to expand. We'd love that. Pay out referral fees or give a slice of equity. So yeah, that number one is that. Number two, 
you know, pick up the book. But for me, I mean, it's $9.99. It's not like I make money on it, but I would really like the feedback on it. That's what's most important for me is uh, I'm doing the Audible book right now. And I am getting, I'm expanding a little bit on what we talked about, Jake, on some of the stories and that they didn't articulate in the book. But if there's any ideas on the book or the Audible or just feedback, I've gotten a lot of good responses or just responses from GoBundance guys. But that's that's what's valuable to me is I, I it's a work in progress. I published it, but I'm not done. I want I want to put out a really good Audible book. That's awesome. So there you go, guys. Go go find his book, buy his book, read it, give him a review on Amazon or you know soon maybe Audible when he has that out there. But go leave him a review. I know that helps as for my book as well. Um, you know, leave reviews for people that, that does help the algorithms. It helps people find it, discoverability and give feedback and comments. If they're negative, send them to them directly. Don't post <laughs> those fine. out there. Don't put them on blast. Uh, you fine. know, I was like, so, um, you know, you can send them that you can, but how can people find you? Where can they find you? And, and where's the best place to send you those messages or where are you active most on social media? Yeah. Yeah. So finding your edge is on Amazon, how to win at the game of commercial real estate. So grab that. Uh, patriotholdings.com. And so that is the website. If you're interested in looking at investing, it's patriotfund4.com, patriotfund4.com. And social media wise, LinkedIn is probably the only thing I really do. Uh, but I am doing like I, my team does all the other ones, uh, Facebook and, and Instagram. But yeah, link, hit me on LinkedIn and, or just shoot me an email, uh, Jeremiah at patriotholdings.com. Awesome. Jeremiah, I just want to close this out. Thank you again uh, to uh, sharing this, sharing your story, sharing some of your insights. It went by super fast uh, for me. It is something that uh, obviously I think we're going to spend more time together. Uh, we we're actually going to hang out in Austin recently, but I think you had some stuff that you had to re retool. Your assistant sent me a message. So I'm excited that we, we got a chance to uh, record this episode and I'm excited for, for the future of us connecting up and, and seeing how we can go kick ass and take names because that that is really what it's, it's about is, is those things and doing it with people that are collectively trying to move the needle and dent the world. So I, I appreciate you doing that, leading your team, you know, coming with this energy, coming with the way that you, uh, you know, have structured your organization and, and compelling many, many families and, and I think probably generations worth into the future of because of your living into your individual greatness. Thanks, man. Great questions. I enjoyed it. Appreciate this, Jake. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.